It'll take a minute for my eyes to focus and be able to see you. Dude, I woke up. I woke up yesterday um, and couldn't open my eyes. I'm allergic to poison oak. The guy down the hill from us was weed whacking. I was walking the dog. Bad things happen. <laughs> but I have discovered that you can go to your doctor and say, I have to speak. You have to make me able to open my eyes. <laughs> she will inject you with drugs that will make you feel you can do anything. <laughs> the swelling will come down, the world will go back and forth a little bit, but you will find you can do anything. Mix your drugs right, that's my motto. I mostly mix caffeine and lots and lots of water. I was 12 years old when I found Ray Bradbury. Uh, the Martian Chronicles. Oh my God, oh my God. To be 12, almost 13, on the cusp of adolescent hormones, your heartbeat speeding up, that language pouring in. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Drunk, the man was drunk on language. You read it out loud and you hear it, it goes in, it comes out. It's a disease. It's catching. You read beautiful prose out loud to yourself at 12, you will be changed forever. I'm a Baptist, can I get a witness? <laughs> I should just warn you, I'm a Zen Baptist. The church pretty much stayed where it was and I moved along. They haven't been too thrilled with me since puberty. Then again, I haven't been too thrilled with them since puberty. <laughs> what I really want to do is acknowledge what I feel here, especially after listening to all the workshop, workshop leaders. <laughs> it's true, I use bad language, but that was a slip. <laughs> this sense of people who love what they're doing, who have craft, expertise, insight, but more than that, a need to share, a need to be part of something larger than themselves. You know what this is about. You know why you do the work you do. I am here to tell you a few things you already know. Your mama don't respect you. Your daddy is worried that you'll never make a living. Your sisters are scared shitless that you're going to tell things about <laughs> Brothers have the same concern. They're just trying to influence you in the right direction, talking about their best qualities. There is a world of people out there who really don't understand the thing you do and who, to a certain extent, you are constantly hiding from. Your most creative act sometimes is explaining what it is you do. Come on, come on. I am not the only one in the room whose mother said, baby, did they pay you to do that? <laughs> First short story I ever published, my mother was like, they paid you to do that? How much did they pay you to do that? $29.95 and 14 copies of the magazine, which I then sold. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
wanted me to have a steady income. She thought I could invent an interesting detective, and that detective would just keep finding killers. There was always killers. <laughs> I tried desperately to write a mystery for my mother. I love my mother. I outlined seven different mysteries. I never wrote one. I'd get the first couple of paragraphs and I'd lose interest. It was because I didn't read mysteries until about a decade ago and then I discovered, Lord, God, there's some good stuff here. I have been an arrogant fool. I have to go to Baptist church and confess my sin. These people can write. And I thought it was only them literary writers that could do that. Make a character you believe in. Take you somewhere you've never been. Scare the bejesus out of you. Make you cry. That's what literary fiction intends to do. And then I read mysteries that made me cry. Hell, I read comic stories that make me cry. <laughs> what I am here to do is to tell you, you do not have to be a great soul to write a great book. You don't have to do that. Odds are, you were worried on that score. <laughs> I know a lot of writers. We're a pitiful bunch of them. You're a pitiful bunch. <laughs> I've been talking to college students. I'm trying to clean up my language. I was teaching with Alan Chase in Northern Virginia, and he turned to me and he said, I use a certain amount of profanity, but you're scary, girl. <laughs> and I was so happy. It was the best I had done in months. I had actually scared a man with gray hair and the ability to diagram a paragraph. <laughs> you do not have to be a genuinely good person. Now I know Alice Walker said that you had to, a good person cannot write a good book. Well, screw that. I met James Dickey. That man was a dog. That man never met a girl he couldn't feel up or proposition. And I came in watching him and thinking, this is a dog. This is a terrible human being. And then the sucker read a poem. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, there is no God. <laughs> you can be a licentious, evil son of a bitch, and you can write well. Young girls will throw themselves at your <laughs> person with no insight but if you can write beautifully people will come to you and speak to you about your deep and wonderful soul and if you've been to enough writers conferences you'll know how to nod acknowledge your genius I believe in this stuff I believe in the shared community one of the reasons I believe in it is that we keep ourselves relatively honest in the midst of being liars. I mean, come on, this is what we do. We tell lies for a living. Even when we do nonfiction, let's be clear, we're creative. We lie through our teeth and smile. We seduce people. We misdirect. We suggest. We stick our mamas in and give them terrible bad habits. <laughs> We write about our first lover who broke our heart, and we talk about their inadequate sexual skills. <laughs> We're terrible people! Except, except every once in a while, every once in a while, even in the midst of being terrible people, we touch that vein 
We feel that lightning. There are nights writing, I write in the middle of the night, telling dogs and children. When they're unconscious, I get some work done. In the middle of the night, every once in a while, every once in a while, it takes fire. Every once in a while, it comes out right. Not often enough for his something. But every once in a while, and all you can do, I come up out of my chair, I fling my arms, I walk back and forth. Have you ever felt that? Yes. <sighs> you can always spot them snake handlers. <laughs> when you catch fire, when the story comes alive, when your language rises to the level of the people you can see playing in your mind, when it all starts to sing, oh God, that's better than cash. <laughs> cash is good. I don't talk bad about cash. I was raised poor. I never want to be poor again. But I know for a fact I can live and be poor. But I cannot live without access to that electrical charge. Those moments when suddenly the world makes sense. We write to make sense. We write sometimes, sometimes to sort out what we don't even know we know. I'm serious, you do not have to be a good person. And I'm proof. I'm a terrible person. I'm jealous. I'm vindictive. I'm small-minded. I want to be the best writer in the room. I know that no one else in the room has that problem. <laughs> I know it's only me. <clears throat> Just as I know that I'm the only one here that wakes up in the middle of the night and thinks I'm no good. Thinks that nothing I've done is, is up to the level of what I wanted it to be. And when I go places and they actually pay me money, I am there under false pretenses and I should give the cash back. But I was raised poor, so I don't. I have yet to meet a good writer, and I'm fairly strict in my judgments about who's good or not, and it has more to do with sweat and inspiration than cash or awards. But I have never met a good writer who didn't have that disease that I have, that deep, deep, aching insecurity, that conviction that I'm not good enough, that conviction that no matter what I do, I should have been doing this other thing. That sense of shame. We are trying always, always to be our best selves on the page. We are trying always to get it right. But to get to getting it right, we go through getting it wrong over and over and over again. I can make jokes about it, but it'll kill you. There's a reason writers drink and mess around and court young people. <laughs> We're looking for some kind of comfort and reassurance. We're looking for some kind of permission. We do terrible things. We talk badly about people we actually are jealous of. Michiko. What's her name? I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure there are days that what she would she would give her eye teeth to write a novel. I have yet to meet a critic who didn't want to write a novel. And I have yet to meet a critic who didn't have a deeper sense of shame than I do. 
course, I think that's just. <laughs> <laughs> so, why do you write? You know you're in, the, you're in the age of the death of literature. Someone's told you? Oh, hell, I'm here to deliver you the news. They told me the book is dead. The book is dead. Okay, maybe, maybe hardcover, $39 editions. I can let that go. I'm mostly buy paperbacks anyway. I told you I was raised poor. I don't waste cash. But damn it, I've been buying books online. God save me, I'm reading them on my partner's iPad. I refuse to buy a Kindle. I got suspicions about Jeff, what's his name? <laughs> But I got the Kindle for the PC and I got it on eight different machines. My son's reading every book. We got this thing about historical fiction. He reads every book behind me. I feel like, I feel bad for the writers. I know I should pay them twice. Because I'm a writer. You should pay me twice. If you read the book twice, you should send me more money. But as a reader, I'm pretty much like myself as a writer. I love the story. I'm hungry for the story. I pay full price for books. I try not to get them for free. I've been known to buy a used edition. I need books. I need story. I am of the conviction that that's not going away. And I actually have made peace with these various media devices. I used to throw a snip fit when I'd teach a workshop and then little children would bring in their laptops. <laughs> And then they'd want to read me the manuscript off the laptop and they'd always lose their place. And I'm like, no, no, technology's on. But at a certain point, you just start losing the babies. The children want the toys. And then my girlfriend got an iPad and I went to hell. I don't care about the medium anymore. I want the writers to be paid because I want more books from the writers and if they don't eat, they don't write. But I want the story. I want the characters into whose heads I will step, look out of their eyes and feel what they feel. I want the dilemmas. I want the philosophy. I want, I want to see a place I've never been. I want to know people I have. No way of imagining if you don't take me there. I'm deeply, deeply hungry for the great novel I know will one day come from a 17-year-old Amish girl. Because I don't know shit one about 17-year-old Amish girls. There are secrets there to be told. A language I am not familiar with. That is what catches me. That is what I am waiting for. That's what I'm hungry for. That's what I want out of a story. Book, magazine, God, manuscript, pages. Hell, I'd read Papyrus if I had to. Whatever will come to me in story. Story. But language. For me, the medium is language. Oh, I'm an American. I go to movies. I watch television. But I prefer it on the page. I prefer a language that shapes the reality I'm stepping into. I don't need to see pretty people. I need to hear about complicated, nasty people. They're my favorite types anyway. <laughs> I read something a few years ago that just changed my whole thinking. It was an interview with Nabokov. Now, I got 
problems with novel comedy. He's a little dense, and I got some questions about Lolita. <laughs> I like humor, but hey. But he said, this was a reporter talking to a reporter, asking why he wrote. It's that question they're always asking you. Why do you write, Miss Allison? Oh, I write to break the heart of the world, I said. Isn't that good? <laughs> it's kind of true. Kind of true. It's a good line. But you know what Nabokov said? He said, I don't write for cash. I don't write for awards. I write, he said, for that still small sob in the spine of the reader. Doesn't that just give you chills right down to your butt? Oh my God. I want to make that sob. I want not just to make them sob, Christ Jesus, I want them to scream out loud. I want them to look into my books and go, oh my God. I want them to stand up and walk around the room the way I do when I get a sentence right. I want to reach into their hearts. I'm an American writer. I have overweening ambition. <laughs> the only thing that makes us tolerable the only thing that saves us is the grim reality that for the vast majority of our labors, we do not achieve our ambition. We fail, and we know ourselves failures, and that tempers that ambition, that arrogance, that desire to hurt people or shake them up, or even that desire to make them laugh so hard they cry. Failure is the glory of writing. Getting it wrong is the gateway to getting it right. You know all this. I've been talking to people who've been coming here for 10 years, 20 years, people who've been teaching here for 20 years. They're American writers. <laughs> Proof of how, what an evil person I am is that I have raised my child, that tender boy, that I produce through sheer arrogance and a turkey baster. <laughs> He's a sweethearted, good-natured child. And early on, I would grab him by the neck and sit him on the couch and we'd watch American Idol together. I know, I know. We wouldn't watch the whole show. we just watch the first eight to ten shows. And you know why, those of you who've ever done this, those of you, it's like scratching chigger bites. It's something to be ashamed of and it'll leave scars. But those first two months, you're watching people be damn foolish on television. You're watching young men who drive trucks for a living, who believe, who believe they are the reincarnation of Johnny Cash. And they can't take a lick. They come on, we make popcorn. They start singing, I want to get more Coca-Cola. We're beating our feet on the table, coffee table. Look at that little motherfucker! <laughs> <laughs> he thinks he can sing! Look at her! Look at that skirt! It's up to her butt! My God, she thinks she can sing! Oh, oh, oh! It's terrible. It's like, it's like a ritual we do, or we did for many, for several years there. We'd, we'd sit and watch. And somewhere in the middle of it, you know, a little voice, Baptist minister voice in the back of my head would say, you are a thoroughly horrible person. <laughs> and I would think, that 
poor child, that poor child, somebody told her she could sing. Her mama sent her on that show to let her be humiliated in public. It's just, it's just a terrible, sad thing. I would look at that child and then I would feel deeply guilty and I would turn to my son and say, that's a human being. And he'd say, yeah, but he can't sing. <laughs> You're taken in this. In your enjoyment of public humiliation. Think of the enjoyment we're actually sharing right now. Some of you I know have disreputable pasts in which you've watched bad television and watched people be humiliated and voted off the island or just generally made to feel small. Now think for a minute. When somebody asks you what you do, and you say, well, I write stories, and they give you that look, just like the one I give the people from the couch. You pitiful son of a bitch. <laughs> they give you that look. This, children, is the core of what it means to be an artist. To have people look at you and think you're a fool. And to have you, you yourself, be willing to endure not just the humiliation, of being terrible in public, but face to face with someone who looks at you with pity, and let's be very clear, sometimes content. It is the crucible in which we are made as writers. What did they pay you for that story? $28.95. Now I did win a prize later for that story. Money went to the magazine, I thought that was just. But my sisters never read that story. And when I sent it home, they were like, oh, Dorothy's written another story, God. Oh, God. I never watch American Idol after they get to Hollywood. I just have no interest in it. I just, I don't want to see them after they've lost 30 pounds. <laughs> had their makeup done by a professional and had a fashion advisor help them lengthen that skirt just a little bit. That's not my fun part. I'm, I'm into public humiliation. <laughs> but every once in a while I go somewhere and I'm stuck in a motel with insomnia and I should be working on a story but oh Lord save me. I'm clicking the remote and changing channels. And did you know they, they broadcast American Idol? all the time. <laughs> I think there are whole channels where you can always watch it. I didn't know this, and there I am. I'm looking for Oprah. She's gone. And here comes one of the late shows, one of the last ten contestants shows of American Idol. And I was right. They've lost 30 pounds, or they've had their makeup done, or they've gotten a whole new fashion treatment. They got a choreographer who's taught them how to stand right. And I watched, and I recognized some of them same children that Wolf and I had beaten our feet on the floor and laughed at. They opened their mouths, and out came glory. Oh my God. These children that I had laughed at, that I had held in contempt, suddenly were American artists. They were touching the fire. It was pouring through them. I could see it. That experience, that's what we share. 
All right. All right. The doorway is humiliation. The doorway is simple, stubborn determination. I'm going to keep doing this thing. I know it looks like I haven't got a lick of talent. I know, I know my plots are predictable. My character's all right. It's my mama. It's my daddy. <laughs> okay, so I, I made my daddy Henry VIII and my mama's Catherine of Aragon. But God damn it, it's my mama. It's my daddy. Okay, I'm pitiful. Okay, I'm terrible. Okay, I haven't learned what a paragraph is genuinely. I'm studying. <laughs> greatest young writer I ever met was a Native American woman from Arkansas. I taught a free class in San Francisco. To get into my class was only working class writers. You had to write me a one-page statement of why you were qualified to get this free class. She was one of my winners. It was all one page. No line breaks, very few periods. She had never heard of the M-dash. It was enthralling. She had learned to deal pharaoh. She was making some money up in Reno. But she had these stories. In a writer's workshop, you know what happens. Sometimes you bring everybody in, and we all share stories, and people read aloud. And mostly, I try to put together a group that will work together. I try to get them more or less on the same level. Ambitious with something I can teach them. Some Wonderful little flaws that I can correct. Easy stuff. It completely messes up the workshop if you have a genius walk in. <laughs> you perhaps have had this experience. This girl was a genius. She would read her story out loud, because I make everybody read out loud, because I figure if the goal is to learn to endure humiliation, we'll begin there. <laughs> she would read her stories out loud, and the whole room would fall silent. Everybody's mouths would fall open. First couple of times the workshop broke up, I walked her out to her car because I figured one day people was going to kill her. <laughs> <laughs> then we sent the manuscripts around and we looked at it. She dropped out of school in sixth grade. She didn't know what a sentence was. She'd never written a paragraph. Everything ran together right along the page. You get. You get almost Faulknerian sentences, but she'd never read Faulkner. But oh my God, people alive on the page, extraordinary people saying outrageous things, having genuine conversations. Of course, you couldn't tell where the conversations happened because she didn't know any punctuation. <laughs> I had to take her and teach her what a sentence was, what a paragraph was, how to put things in quotes. Simple stuff, the simplest stuff, the stuff you can get in any little grammar. A good craft writer, teacher will help you get there. But nobody is going to give you what she had. A world of story always burning behind her eyes, burning out of her. God, I was so excited. Do you know what it is like to be a teacher and meet a genius and think, oh Lord, oh Lord. They'll forget my books, but they'll remember that I taught her. Oh, God. And when the workshop stopped, she'd come up to me and she said, no, this has been pretty fun. <laughs> and then she went to the hard stuff. She says, you know, how much money do you make? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, we've got to have that conversation. Okay, we'll have that conversation. And I had to tell her, you know, you can't predict money as a writer. 
it's entirely possible to write for years and never get $28.95. And even if you're a success, a success as a writer in America, the average income of a successful writer in America is about the same as an associate professor at a small college. You'd be lucky to get health insurance. I wasn't going to lie to her. I was matter-of-fact about it. But I was also matter-of-fact about the fact that I could get her scholarships and I could get her, we could try to get some grants and there are all these ways that writers find to survive. Ramen noodles, honey, we talk about them. <laughs> and she said, I've been poor. I ain't volunteering to be poor. You know how much I make as a pharaoh dealer? And she headed back to Reno. That was 20 years ago. Every four or five years, she sends me a car. She's moved back to Arkansas. She's dealing in one of the gambling boats. Every once in a while, just to fuck with me, <laughs> she'll send me a piece of a story. And I'll think, oh, God, oh, God. She liked writing, but she didn't love it. All that fire poured into her, all that talent, but she didn't love it. You've got to love it. It's got to be blood, meat, bone. It's got to be the thing you need most in the world. Nobody is going to lie to you and promise you riches. I'm not even going to promise you justice. Every now and again, little revenge. <laughs> if you're really, really good, you can push it to justice. But mostly, mostly what you'll get best you get is vindication. A sentence that sings. A person people believe. A sense of story as a river running through your life. It won't drown you. It'll lift you up. It'll move you forward. I believe in revenge. I believe in justice. I believe that as writers, we have responsibility. It's not enough to be a good writer. You also have to be a good citizen. Not just a citizen of this pitiful country we're stuck in. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a happy 63-year-old. This is not the world I wanted it to be. Perhaps there's someone else in this room who shares with me a sense that we could have had a bit more justice in the world. Take a deep breath. Not just to be a good citizen of your country, but to be a good citizen of your tribe, your nation. Look around this room. This is your nation. These are the people to whom when you say, I finished that story, they know how to appreciate what you have said. In their faces there will be joy and exhilaration. Not that confusion you'll get from your mama. <laughs> you need your family, you need your mama. But Christ Jesus, don't let them read your stories. They'll just say, oh, that's wonderful, baby. You know, you know. It's very rare that we get families that can step into our work. They can't separate us from the work. But our nation, our tribe, the other people in this room who are spending hours, emotional energy, blood, sweat, and goddamn determination, our nation understands what it means to get it right. 
our nation knows that when we come in, our hands shaking, that quiver, oh, oh, could, could you read this? Could you, could you just read this? Have you ever done that? And you feel like such a fool. You feel like you're the most terrible person that pose your, and you're forcing people to read your stuff. You were raised in the Baptist church. You'd never ask anyone to read anything. It'd be a miracle if you could even finish a story. I'm witnessing this. But every once in a while, you come into these people and you take all your courage in hand and you ask someone to read a story. Or, or you show up in one of these workshops and you read it yourself out loud. You're that boy who thinks he's the reincarnation of Johnny Cash. You're that girl in her too short skirt. You're an American artist dreaming of glory. Not sure you're getting it. Not sure you've done it. It feels right. Your blood was pumping. It feels right. You read it out loud. It feels right. But the test is always the reader. The reader. The one who will reflect back to you what you wanted to do. Humiliation. Glory. They are the same thing. I wish for you. I wish for you humiliation. <laughs> I wish for you the best kind of humiliation. That moment in which you think it's those three sentences in the middle. I'll just take them out. <laughs> it's the way I have him talking on page 12. I'll just, I'll just have her say those things to him. It's that hyperbolic, overflown language that I've got to cut by 75%. <laughs> Nobody's going to read an 800-page novel. <laughs> That's the moment. That's the moment when you take the huge risk. You cannot get to glory if you cannot risk hell to get there. I wish for you that courage. I wish for you need. And I'll tell you frankly, the making of me as a writer is real simple. I have OCD. I'm an obsessive compulsive. I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and it ain't never quite good enough, but I'll try it over and over again. It's also true, I've got to clean the house first. <laughs> Let me tell you that an ability to endure humiliation and a compulsive, compulsive need to do the story over will put you in the first rank of the most humiliated population. <laughs> this nation, this tribe, these people. And they'll be there when your book comes out, no matter the media. I'll probably buy it on the Kindle for the PC. <laughs> and, and I will let my son read it, but I'll send you a thank you <laughs> There's only one thing I fear. There's only one thing that stops me. And I fear it always, and I fear that it gets bigger. And that's that undertone that I spoke of earlier. That sense that what we do is inappropriate. That sense that what we love most is indefensible. That sense that we might never be good enough. I spent last weekend with four of my best friends. All of them are good, solid, proficient women writers. Jane Hamilton, 
Kira Joy Fowler, Gail Sukiyam, and Elizabeth George. We got to have dinner at Elizabeth George's house. She's a mass market writer. She's very kind to us literary writers. <laughs> she lets us come to her house, <laughs> feeds us, talks nice to us. These are women who have won awards, who have at least of them, half a dozen novels. I think Elizabeth George has got like 17 Lindley books and an entire series on the British television. Why she has that big house on that island. <laughs> All of us sitting there with paper plates on our laps because Elizabeth doesn't actually cook. <laughs> Another reason I love her dearly. Each one of those women started talking about they don't feel they're good enough. They never feel they're good enough. It was like cold current moving through the room. And I can tell them, you are good enough. Damn, girl, you are fine. Have you read yourself? <laughs> I can say that, but they can't say it to themselves. They can't take it in. This is the place where it can be said to you in a pirate gathering or an early morning, because you're one of them. Some early drinks black coffee runs right in. This is the place where someone can say to you, this things to me. This makes my heart beat fast. This is glory. Maybe, maybe you've been coming here just long enough that you'll be able to hear that, believe it, and use it. And in the dark of the night, when you go back into that head that says, I'm not good enough, I'm never going to be good enough, why did I think I could ride? It'll echo back in, and you'll remember it. You are no judge of yourself. Look to your nation. Look to your tribe.